Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Night Sky Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is a special edition of Postmortem. We have lost another titan, a bold, iconoclastic filmmaker who helped shape the modern horror film. In 1974, the release of The Exorcist just blew up everything we could expect from a horror film. It had the gloss and respect of a full-blown Hollywood production, a top-notch cast, a script written by the author of the book it was based on, William Peter Blatty, and the director of the Academy Award-winning The French Connection, William Friedkin. This didn't look or act anything like what we expected a terrifying supernatural movie to be. It was dramatic, intelligent, propulsive, deeply psychological, in addition to being what at the time was called the scariest movie ever. By far. I had the good fortune to interview Billy Friedkin twice. Once in 1979, on my show for the late lamented Los Angeles pay TV station, the Z Channel, the Fantasy Film Festival, and again on the forerunner of this podcast, the postmortem TV show on Fearnet in 2011. The first time around, Z showed The Exorcist and Exorcist II, The Heretic. I was very young and green, doing my first series of interviews for television, and Billy Friedkin was bold, brash, and suffered no fools gently. He was passionate and, well, intimidating but it was a wonderful interview and a great opportunity. And I think he came on the show to blast the hell out of Exorcist too, which, as you will hear, he had, well, little regard for. In 2001, Peter Block, then a Lionsgate exec and the head of the FearNet TV network, managed to book him on my show, and at that time to promote Friedkin's new movie, Bug, which to this day remains an extremely powerful but lesser-known film from his deep filmography. The show is more conversational, and we get a bit deeper into where he came from and what his methods were. Again, it was an honor to be able to have these conversations, and we want to salute the passing of a great film artist and share it with you here. William Friedkin, you are deeply missed. Oh, one more quick note. The Fantasy Film Festival interview never aired on the Z Channel because Friedkin said such insulting things about the sequel to The Exorcist and the people who made it that uh, the Z Channel was afraid of legal problems. Well, we're not afraid of a man expressing his opinion, and so we're giving it to you uncensored the way it never ran on the Z Channel. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello and welcome to a special on the Request Playhouse here on the Z Channel. We're going to be seeing in a few minutes one of the most widely requested shows ever on Z, The Exorcist, a popular, controversial, and horrifying film. And our guest tonight is the director of the film, William Friedkin. He's, uh, his past films have included Good Times with Sonny and Cher, uh, The Birthday Party, Night They Raided Minsky's, Boys in the Band. He won a, uh, an Academy Award for the French Connection, and The Exorcist is what we're seeing tonight and discussing tonight. Bill Friedkin, thanks for joining us here. First, I would uh, like to start off with uh, attitudes. Do you think The Exorcist could be made in 1979? Yes, as a matter of fact, I don't think that uh, The Exorcist has dated at all, and I think if it were going to be undertaken by anyone, it would be made exactly the same way today, with, with no changes. and and as graphically as it's depicted. Or perhaps someone would undertake to do it and not make it as graphically, but I don't think there'd be any problem about, about making it today. Matter of fact, I think it's, uh, attitudes are more receptive toward it. You think? Uh, one of the things you touched on there was um, how it was presented, the literalness of the exorcism and the possession mm -hmm. that uh, the story is about is the most striking element. There's never really 
a series of red herrings that you would expect leading up to is this a real possession or is this fakery? Mm -hmm. uh, how did you choose to present that? The Exorcist is based on a true story, a case that took place in the Washington area, actually in Silver Springs, Maryland, in 1948 or 1949. It was a case of the possession of a 14-year-old boy. That case was widely reported in the newspapers of that day, especially the Washington Post, which did a series of long, lengthy articles about that case of possession. Bill Blatty, the creator of The Exorcist, was an undergraduate at Georgetown University in that area when this case took place. And not only did he read the newspaper articles at the time, but he later had access to a lot of very uh, confidential material in the archives at Georgetown University, which I also saw many years later, uh, having to do not only with the diaries of the actual exorcist, but of doctors and nurses who were in attendance when this bizarre story occurred. And Bill Blatty worked for the better part of 20 years formulating the novel that became The Exorcist. It was, as I say, based on a, a true story. And the details in the actual case are every bit as mystifying and exciting and bizarre as what Bill so brilliantly recreated in his novel and in his film script. So there was no reason to hoke it up, you know, as right. they did, for example, with the, the so-called sequel to The Exorcist, which is nothing but hokum. The Exorcist itself is based on a true but highly puzzling occurrence. So it had to be presented as realistically as possible. Right. The novel, it has been said that uh, the film The Exorcist has taken the more exploitive elements of the novel and left out maybe some of the meatier aspects. Do mm -hmm. you want to comment on that? Sure. Who said that? First, let's, let's, let's talk about who said it. Okay. It has been said in some reviews. By who? Film critics. Wh which like, one? Uh, okay. I don't have specifics with me, but that has been said. I've never heard that. Let's put it that way. The, my uh, attitude about the book was it was a great classic work of literature. I believe that The Exorcist will be, the, the novel, will be regarded years from now as the works of Edgar Allan Poe are regarded today. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe never had any commercial success, nor did he ever even get good reviews in his day. Right. Bill Blatty was fortunate to get both with his marvelous novel, The Exorcist. Uh, but there are a lot of people, because of its popularity, who would, out of sour grapes, find a number of reasons to say this is wrong with it or that's wrong with it or the film is exploitive or whatever. That's possible. But uh, my attitude about making the film and having worked with the author of the novel who wrote the screenplay for me was to render it as faithfully as possible, to take what Mr. Blatty had created and to dramatize what I felt was his magnificent novel as faithfully as possible. And I think that Bill and I uh, may have had some disagreements from time to time about what should be kept and what, should, what had to be left out. I always prevailed in those disagreements because I was the director. But, but I think you'll find that Mr. Blatty, uh, to pretty much the same extent uh, as me, feels that uh, uh, the film is the book. Right, that was a point I was going to bring up is, uh, was there a difference in your vision and his vision? You were to bring this Not to really. the screen. I th I, Bill did write a screenplay, which he gave me. Bill hired me to direct the film. Not Warner Brothers, but right. Bill Blatty. Uh, I was his choice to direct the picture. And he had written a screenplay, which he presented to me after he had uh, hired me. I didn't care for Bill's original screenplay. I thought that it was not a faithful rendering of his novel. I thought that he did take it far afield. That was just my opinion. It wasn't his. But what I did with Bill was to get him to start all over again from scratch and tell the story in the script as he had told it in the novel. We went back and, and, 
as I think he would tell you, became more faithful to the novel than he did in his first draft bef screenplay before he ever called on me to direct it. Uh, there were certain things that I would at this time call minor disagreements that we had about what should be left out. Um, whenever they came up, both of us had a full airing of our disagreements, and I always prevailed because Bill was not a neophyte to, to this business. He knows that the director who is calling the shots on the floor and with the actors and in the cutting room has got to go his way. The initial decision that Bill made to hire me was to put his faith in me. And though we disagreed on, on a few things, he allowed me to prevail. Now, in, bringing, in your job as a director, in bringing the characters to life, the casting was very interesting. It was a big-budget film. You could have gone with name stars and the mm -hmm. like. And for the most part, they were relatively unfamiliar faces. How did you go about casting the parts? Well, we had to find a 12-year-old girl to play uh, Reagan. That must have been one There of was the nobody difficult. around that you could say, well, she'd be good, you know. We auditioned over 500 girls. I, I stopped counting after 500. And Linda Blair got the part for one reason only, her incredible intelligence and sensitivity. She is, was the brightest and, and uh, most sensitive young girl that I've, I've ever known and easy to deal with. And she completely understood all the ramifications of this material at her age at that time. And she was an A student, an honor student, and uh, a, a fine uh, horsewoman at her age. She was a prize-winning horsewoman. So she was totally pulled together, and I felt that she wouldn't suffer any, any psychic repercussions uh, as a result of, of making the film. Uh, in the case of Ellen Burstyn, uh, the studio wanted uh, any number of major stars to play her part. but. Uh, Ellen Burstyn called me when she had heard I was going to direct The Exorcist. She called and said she wanted to be in it. Would I come and meet with her? I did. I met with her. Again, I found her sensitive and intelligent and, and someone who had a complete grasp of what the story was about. And so I didn't want a star. Uh, I wanted Ellen Burstyn. Right. Uh, Max von Sydow was always our first choice for Father Marin. Perfect. He uh, has always, in, in the films he made with Ingmar Bergman at least, um, represented a certain strength of character and, and moral strength, which he brings with him to almost everything he does, uh, except he left at home when he did the sequel, <laughs> the so-called sequel to The right. Exorcist, with the Harry Tick or whatever which they Which we'll get into a little later. But um, uh, Jack McGowan was our... May Rest in Peace was my first choice to play Burke Dennings, the director. He was a, a brilliant uh, but little-known um, uh, actor from the Irish theater, primarily. Jason Miller? Uh, Jason Miller, that's, that, that's the subject of another interview. That's such a long story of how we got on to him. I wanted an unknown for that mm -hmm. part. I didn't want any one of the several names that were proposed or who had proposed themselves. I believe that that the, the man who came on wearing the priest collar performing this exorcism had to be an actor that was completely acceptable to the audience as a priest. And I, I really didn't want a character whose private life would in any way, might in any way um, overshadow uh, his believability. But then the story of how I came on Jason is so convoluted and strange that it's, you know, a, a whole show in itself. He had never done a film before. He was a playwright. Yeah, more known for our winning season. He was a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright of a play called That Championship Season. Right. And he had never, he had done some off-Broadway acting, very little, no screen acting at all. And I had seen his play in New York, to make a long story short, and the play uh, was very powerful, moved me. I then met the author and saw in him the physical characteristics of Father Karras. It then turned out that Jason had at one time studied for the priesthood, had gone to Catholic University, and, and was uh, trained as a Jesuit. So all of those things began mm -hmm. to add up. I did a screen test with him and liked it, and he got the, the part. Lee J. Cobb was always my choice for Kinderman. The, uh, the film is horrifying, to, regardless of your philosophical beliefs. Even the staunchest atheist will go in and be frightened by the exorcist. What 
universal chord do you think it strikes and why? The Exorcist happens to be a great story. That's, that's where it, it begins and ends. I mean, we could go into a lot of stuff and get into a lot of pseudo-scientific hogwash about why it has this power. The reason it has this power is because Bill Blatty wrote a wonderful story that is timeless. Uh, it compares in its way with Gone with the Wind, which is not a horror story. Mm -hmm. But why do people respond to that? you know, today. It's very corny. It's not very believable to me today to see that movie. A lot of the effects in it, you can see the seams showing, but it still works as a great and lasting romance. And that's because its narrative line is so, is so brilliantly um, uh, wrought. And because the characters are strong and believable, and it's constantly surprising, and you care about the people. These are all the elements and properties of good storytelling. What do you feel you brought to that? I know there are a lot of a techniques. A faithful adaptation. That's all I brought to it. As faithful uh, a translation to the screen or adaptation, if you want to call it that, that's what I brought to it. I respected it. I felt at the time I read it that it was a powerful story that had certain uh, obvious um, depths that went beyond and depths and implications that went beyond the surface narrative. And I tried to preserve those depths. But, but I, I didn't alter the story in any way because it was so powerful. Do you think the power lies in its dealing with faith? There are horror movies that aren't nearly as horrifying as something like The Exorcist because it deals with things that are inside of all The Exorcist is about the mystery of faith. If you ask me to put in one sentence what is this film about, that's what it's about. Um, the mystery of faith. And faith that is tested in a confrontation between, between forces of good and evil in both an abstract and in a realistic physical way. And The Exorcist, as a story, I'm not talking about the film now because I happen to direct the film, I'm talking about the story if the story is a powerful and uplifting one and in its way you know it has the power of many stories in the bible and uh, you know bill blatty is a deeply religious man and his his religion um and his beliefs uh transcended his powers as um as a, as a writer we're fast running out of time i'm getting signals and there's one thing i do want to touch on uh, the sequel of The Exorcist, The Heretic, which we're also showing on Z this week. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you and Mr. Blatty were offered a deal to become a part of a sequel because of the obvious success of yeah. The Exorcist. Um, why did you choose not to and what do you feel? Well, I felt that The Exorcist was totally complete in itself. And to do a sequel was just, you know, it would just be done for commercial purposes and no other. The so-called sequel, the Harry Tick, or whatever they refer to it as, <laughs> to me it's an abomination. Not because it's a bad movie, which it is, a bad movie, uh, wrought by people who are, in my opinion, fourth and fifth-rate intellects. But what they attempted to do was to trash the original material. Rather than to take a story and try to do a story that utilized some of the same strengths of The Exorcist, all they did was take uh, the title and the logo type and some of the characters and trash them. To me, it, that film, if it can be called a film, it's an abomination, and I think this channel you know, ought to be ashamed of itself for running it. Uh, but to me, it would be the equivalent of someone taking a novel by Tolstoy or Charles Dickens, taking the title and the characters and coming up with a porno musical. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I've seen works of pornography that have more integrity than that picture. Okay, well, no punches pulled on uh, our show here today. And we want to thank our guest, William Friedkin, for being with us and sharing his point of view with us. I can't believe the time is gone already. There's a lot more we would have liked to discuss, but that's the way it goes. So please stay tuned for The Exorcist, one of the most horrifying films of our time and controversial as well. Thank you for being okay, with man. us. Pleasure, thank you.
I'm Mick Garrison. This is Postmortem, and our guest is one of the most versatile filmmakers of our time, William Friedkin. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Mick. Well, when you decided to become a storyteller, was your choice always film? No. Uh, I started uh, in the mailroom of a television station in Chicago, right out of high school. I never went to college. I have never had a lesson in filmmaking. Uh, no, I wasn't one of those young film buffs, you know, mm. who were predominant in my generation. Right. You know, kids who grew up on, the films I used to see were the Three Stooges, uh-huh. you know, uh, you know, where there'd be a Saturday afternoon of um, eight short subjects and cartoons and a 40 minute feature. Um, but I grew up in live television and loved it. And, and I had no particular goals apart from that. Well, you started doing documentary work for David Walper and the like, but I guess your first or one of your first uh, fiction films was off-season for Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Well, that's the first thing I ever did on a soundstage. Uh-huh. But I had done a documentary in Chicago uh, about a, an African-American man who was on death row. It's still available on VHS. Wow. And um, it saved this guy's life. It saved him from the electric chair. So it was filmmaking activism that actually yeah. made that happen. I thought, my God, film is so powerful. Mm-hmm. We can use film to save somebody's life. And then, of course, I got into the Hollywood mainstream and was quickly dispelled of that notion. <laughs> so how did that transition occur, going from uh, that documentary film into narrative? Uh... Well, my film won a, a whole bunch of prizes mm-hmm. at documentary film festivals where the Walper Company had their own films entered. And my film kept winning. And so Walper invited me to come out to California and do documentaries for him. He had a series on the ABC television network. And as a result of that, the producer of the Hitchcock Hour, Norman Lloyd, mm-hmm. uh, who was an act, he was the saboteur in the movie Saboteur. Right. He had seen uh, my documentaries. Right. And then uh, I met with him and he said, look, um, we only have one show left. This is our last show after 10 years. Here's the script, if you want to do it. And it was a very interesting script by a fellow named James Bridges, uh, who's yeah. passed away. Right. And I had never done anything on a soundstage. Mm-hmm. But we filmed at Universal and on the, uh, on the Psycho set on the Bates Motel set. Mm. And now Mr. Hitchcock always wore a suit and tie, and I hear that uh, that was not your habit at the time. Uh, Hitchcock at that time used to come in one day a week to just read his introductions off an idiot card, you know. And on the day that he came in, I was setting up a shot, and all these guys in black suits came over like a gigantic tsunami. And in the midst of this tsunami was this very portly figure of Mr. Hitchcock. And by then, of course, I had seen some of his movies. By then. <laughs> and, uh, and so they brought Hitchcock over to me and uh, introduced me to him. And he sort of looked me up and down. I was dressed pretty much as I am today, maybe the same clothes. <laughs> and I said, oh, uh, it's really a pleasure to meet you. And I've learned so much from just watching your films. And he offered me his hand like this, as though I was supposed to kiss it or something. (laughs) And it was like wet. And um, uh, he said, Mr. Friedkin, usually our directors wear ties. And I thought he was putting me on. And I said, uh, well, I, you know, I got dressed quickly today. I must have left it at home. And by then he was gone. He he just walked away, and that's all he ever said to me. And I didn't see him or hear from him for three years. And then it was the night of the Directors Guild Award. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had just won the Directors Guild Award for the French Connection. You know, it was a dinner setting, and there were tables and chairs and all these directors and their families. And in the front row, I see Hitchcock and his family. And I had a rented tux and one of those uh, bow ties that you could snap. snap. And uh, I took my award and went down (laughs) where he was sitting and I snapped my tie. (laughs) And I said, how do you like the tie now, Hitch? (laughs) 
and he he just stared at me. He had no. He memory. didn't get it. <laughs> he had no memory of that. I of course carried it with me for three years. <laughs> right. But at the same time, I have to say that's really all you need to see to learn how to make film is to watch Hitchcock's films, not just for suspense, but because of how well they're made and how he handled every genre and every kind of scene, love scenes and comedy. He's a textbook for anyone who wants to know how to make a film. You don't need to go to film school. You just need to watch his movies and you'll get it. The one thing I heard from Norman Lloyd is that Hitchcock usually went into the cutting room and changed the director's cuts mm -hmm. in either small or large ways. But he didn't touch the one I had done. Really? So, I, you know, that, that was certainly, I, I felt good about that. Well, one of the most interesting things about your career is its variety. I mean, you are comfortable with sports films, with supernatural, with uh, action thrillers, with chase scenes and comedy, all of that stuff. So is that something that's been an intent to try not to do the same thing twice? Well, things find me, Mick. I see. You know, I often don't look for anything. The Exorcist found me. Everything I've done. I've never sought out to do films in any one genre or to do any. I haven't done that many films, actually. And I Well, your first but, feature film was Sonny and Cher, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it was with Sonny and Cher. It was called Good Times. Good Times. It was a musical. And uh, I shot half of it with a non-union crew with Bill Butler, who I brought out from Chicago. Because right. Sonny Bono was looking for a young director that he could relate to, preferably someone who didn't know what they were, they were doing. <laughs> so and, he could control. And uh, that was me, you know. <laughs> but we hit it off great. Yeah. He, he was an absolute genius. And recently I went to see Cher in Vegas, and she runs about 40 minutes of the film in her act. Really? She runs all the music numbers uh, in between changes, costume changes Fantastic. and stuff. And I look at it now, and it, it's not bad. But, I mean, at the time I thought, you know, it was inept. Well, it led to a bunch of sort of what we would call today art house movies, your adaptations of theater pieces like Mark Crawley's The Boys in the Band mm -hmm. uh, with Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party. Mm -hmm. How do you go through Sonny and Cher to these theatrical adaptations and then to this giant success of The French Connection? I was a very hot young director after the Sonny and Cher movie. Why, I don't know. Uh, there weren't a lot of young guys making feature films then, as there aren't today. There, there were aren't. a bunch of guys in ties then. They were guys who knew what they were doing and came from the old school. Mm -hmm. And it was a tremendous transition period in, in Hollywood film, sort of led by Easy Rider, mm -hmm. you know. And all of a sudden, films that appealed to young people that were made by younger guys were you know, something that uh, could get done in Hollywood. Uh, the first offer I had to make a film was from Blake Edwards, who was a, a great director. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, I'm going to do a uh, feature film on this television series I have called Peter Gunn, about a private detective. All right, Craig Stevens. Craig Stevens basically playing Cary Grant. Yeah. And, uh, and he was going to produce a feature film out of it, and he wanted me to direct it. And I, of course, was thrilled, because I loved the show. So I went to see him, and we had a few conversations. Then he gave me the script, and I thought it was awful. And I went back to see Blake the next day. And I said, Blake, I, you know, I don't like this script, and I don't get it. What I think you've done is you've taken two episodes of the television show and just bridged them together, and I don't think that this is a movie. And he said, what? And I said, what do you know? He said, you're just a kid. You've done one movie, and you're telling me that this script's no good? And uh, I said, it doesn't work for me, Blake. I'd love to, I'd love to work for you, but not with this script. Mm -hmm. And as I left the building, a guy came running out after me. And he said, Mr. Friedkin, he said, my name is William Peter Blatty. And he said, uh, I wrote that script with Blake. And he was sitting in the room. And uh, he said, I just want to thank you because we know the script doesn't work, but no one will say this to Blake. <laughs> you know, Blake just wants to do it and he thinks it's fine. And he said, I want to thank you for being honest because not a lot of people will tell Blake 
things that he doesn't want to hear. I didn't see Blatty after that for maybe three or four years. But then I had made the French Connection, which was not out yet. I was going on a tour across the United States. And before I left, I get this manuscript. I don't know what it is. It was from William Peter Blatty. And I tossed it into my suitcase. And I went through 18 cities, didn't read it. And then I finally ended my tour in San Francisco at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And I had dinner plans at 8. And I opened this manuscript. And it's The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty. I start to read it at 5 o'clock. And I thought, well, I'll give this about 15 minutes. About an hour or so later, I called the people I was having dinner with, and I canceled dinner. <laughs> and I read the whole book through it that night. And I called Blatty, and I said, uh, Bill, this is terrific. It's just, it's just magnificent. And he said, would you be interested in directing it? Mm. And I said, of course I would. I, I, I can see the film. He said, well, I must tell you that the studio has offered it to Stanley Kubrick, Arthur Penn, and Mike Nichols. <laughs> and he said, but I have director approval. He said, I'm going to produce it. And I said, why in the hell would you want to give this to me? And he said, because I remember that you were honest with Blake Edwards. Wow. And he said, I've had directors bullshit me through my whole career, and I think it's a, a rare quality when someone doesn't. I said, have you seen any? He said, no. He said, I've heard that you're really good. So this is before French Connection had become a big It hit. hadn't come out. Yeah, right. It was just seen by critics and feature writers. So it was getting a little buzz that he'd heard about. A little buzz, but so... Stanley Kubrick then passed because he, he said he only developed his own things uh -huh. then. Uh, Arthur Penn passed because he said, I've, I've done some films about violence and I don't want to do any more. And Mike Nichols said, you can't base a movie about the devil on the performance of a 12-year-old girl. It's <laughs> You'll never find such a person. Uh, by, by then, The French Connection came out and Blatty went back in to see the people at Warner Brothers, and they said, are you here about Friedkin? And he said, yes. And they said, well, we want him now more than you do. <laughs> uh, so, but so that's how that fell into my lap. Amazing. Well, and Blatty, before then, had been known as a comedy writer. Probably. He had only written comic novels and comic screenplays. Yeah, John wrote, Goldfarb. And... He wrote John Goldfarb, Please Come Home. He wrote The Man from the Diners Club. Right. He wrote A Shot in the Dark, which mm -hmm. had Inspector Clouseau as a character, right. and other comedies for Blake. So, so who would expect that he would write probably one of the most disturbing and horrific uh, human novels to, to come out at that time. Well, he didn't expect to do it either. And mm -hmm. he did it at, at a time of desperation in his life. He had heard about this story, it's based on an actual case, right. when he was an undergraduate at Georgetown. It was a little boy, right? It was a boy, 14 years mm -hmm. old. And Blatty, as an undergraduate at a Jesuit school, he couldn't get any of the facts because they'd never talk about it. Mm -hmm. But he knew it was it was in the wind. And years later, he ran into a publisher at a cocktail party, and the publisher was a guy named Mark Jaffe from Bantam Books, and he said, uh, what are you working on now, Bill? And uh, Blatty said, I don't know. I, there's this story I've been carrying with me all these years about an exorcism, and he told them what little he knew about it, and Mark Jaffe said, I'll publish that. Mm. So he had to write it. But uh, so The Exorcist really was quite a phenomenon. So many of your films have a dark side to them, even the comedies, even the uh, adventure films, things like that. Uh, is that something that you bring to the projects? I think that the films that uh, are most important that I've done are films about the thin line between good and evil and uh, the fact that there's good and evil in all of us and that it's a constant struggle for our better angels to prevail. And like, for example, the best cops, the best detectives are guys who think like criminals, mm -hmm. you know, and might have gone the other way had it not been for, again, an accident of fate. 
as in the French Connection, for example. Yeah. Well, getting back to The Exorcist, um, why do you think that the themes of The Exorcist affected its audience so strongly, um, whether they're believers or not? Because I'm not a particularly religious person, but that movie still was incredibly disturbing to me. Um, well, first of all, what it leads to is the mystery of faith. Mm. The idea that a guy who preached 2,000 years ago, di didn't preach, taught, left no writings behind, only memories of what he had said to various people that he encountered, for a period of only three years, Jesus, before he was crucified, that his thoughts and teachings in a little part of the world in the Middle East have had such a profound effect on people's lives is inherent in Blatty's novel of The Exorcist and I think in the film. The only way I could have made The Exorcist the way I did was if I believed it. Right. If you look at the film, it's a film made by people who believe this. Mm -hmm. We're not kidding. The guy who wrote it and the guy who directed it accept demonic possession and exorcism as a possibility. There's a line in Shakespeare's Hamlet that I think sums it up better than I could tell you. And that's where Hamlet says to his best friend, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. And, and I totally believe that. Whether I believe in something or not doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right. Um, and I made The Exorcist with the profound belief that this was possible. Well, not only possible, but uh, the actors you chose were incredibly uh, uh, honest and real. And there's a sense, as I think is a theme throughout your films, that their lives had already been in progress before the opening titles of the movie and things would continue afterwards. So many of your films seem like puzzles that don't have a conclusive last piece that you can put in to complete it. And is that something that's a conscious effort of yours uh, in your storytelling? In a way it is, Mick, in the sense that I don't believe in offering an audience neat solutions because I, as an audience, prefer those films that let me think it through and take from it what I will. I believe, for example, that with The Exorcist, if you believe that the world is, is a terrible place and that the devil is everywhere and that innocent little girls are, are being overtaken by an evil demon and that, that that's what you will take away from the film. If you believe, uh, on the other hand, that there is there's a force for good in the world that's constantly combating evil and often winning the battle, then that's what you take from The Exorcist. But I don't provide easy answers. In fact, Blatty and I had a, a long disagreement about what the ending should be, which continued for 25 years. <laughs> he always wanted me to go back and put in a happier ending. And I used to say to him, Bill, you know, you're a sore winner. <laughs> you know, th this movie's made $600 million, okay? It's been seen and by people all over the world who've been moved by it, and now you want to change it. You know, it works. Just relax. Enjoy life, you know? But finally, in the year 2000, I felt that I owed him so much, and we kept having this argument, and he called me and said, would you just look at the footage that you cut? We'll go look at it on a, a editing machine at Warner's. And we did, and I looked at it, and I saw 12 minutes that I thought were pretty good, and I felt I owed it to Blatty, so I restored 12 minutes in the film, which was called The Version You've Never Seen. Right. I didn't call it a director's cut, because... Um, my director's cut is what most of the You've people seen have seen. Screen. But I love the version you've never seen. And as I get older, I come more and more, you know, toward belief. Uh, belief in the teachings of Jesus. And the 12 minutes that I cut out had to do with all that. Mm. For the most part, 
with rare exception. There was one special effect that I had cut out. The spider walk. The spider walk, because you could see how it was done. We, we weren't successful in achieving it, so I took it out until CGI had come in, computer-generated imagery, and I was able to erase the wires so you couldn't see. It's the only time I've ever used CGI. Oh, interesting. But I believe and I want people to take from my films what they bring to them themselves. I don't tell them how they're supposed to think about a movie. I remember when I first saw The Exorcist on opening week, I was living in San Diego and waited in line for a long time to get into that theater, and everyone was so nervous about it. The murmuring and everything, the anticipation was higher than I'd ever seen before or since. And every tiny little funny moment, people would laugh uproariously at it because they were so nervous about it. And then, it became more and more disturbing, and people go, don't go into that bedroom, and the dread. Did you do psychological investigation into how to get under people's skin? I think it was instinctive, but, and first of all, it's inherent in the story. It starts with the story, Mick, always, and the characters. If that's not there, then nothing else is gonna be there, really. Right. But. What you're talking about, people who went in to see The Exorcist and had this anticipation, that's a thing called expectancy. Mm -hmm. It's very much like if you're walking in a neighborhood, in a city, say where there has been a number of murders or robberies or whatever, there's a certain sense of fear that you have just inherently walking there at night. Something horrible has happened there and now you're in that place and you can't help but wonder if it's going to happen to you. And that happened with The Exorcist immediately. It was in the air that this film was profoundly moving. The audience tends to laugh at stuff that disturbs them. You know, the, it, it's a, in a way, it's, a, it, it's say, ha, ha, you're not going to get me with that. You know, right. you can't scare me. And so they'll laugh at certain things that aren't even meant to be funny, but, but that may have a, a touch of humor in them. So I knew that. And I, I knew, again, from watching like Hitchcock films and other films that I had seen, how to achieve and shore up that kind of feeling in an audience. There was a film called Diabolique. Mm -hmm. Uh, French film that I had heard was a very frightening film and I was scared when I saw the opening credits because of what was put in my mind about it and of course Hitchcock's Psycho. He took forever to get you involved with a character before he killed her. 35 or 40 minutes and when the Janet Lee character is, is killed it's so shocking and so uh, a thunder uh, a moment that you are f scared for the rest of the film. So, and so I, I was aware of these techniques of surprising the audience. But there were other techniques that were put into play that had not been much used before that, the flash cuts of the face imagery. What w was the planning behind some of those techniques? Well, the, what you call the flash cuts, I refer to as subliminal perception. Right. Shocking counterpoint. Right, but that's the way people think in subliminal cuts. While people are watching this interview, things are flashing through their mind because I believe that the mind works like a kind of vast file card index. And there's someone pulling out these file cards without telling us. While you're driving, sometimes you'll get a thought, or you will. And that thought, that image, that idea, you know, it might take hold or it might just pass you by. It's not what you meant to think about at all. And I tried to use that technique in a film. The subliminal cuts were largely images of this demon that appeared uh, that sort of were meant to give the audience the feeling that the presence of the demon was constant in the house. And uh, it was an afterthought. It's not in the script. We had these makeup tests, on a, not on Linda Blair, but on her stunt double. Mm -hmm. We did various makeup tests that I didn't like, that didn't work. But there were incredible images of them 
that we had filmed. And it was those images of the rejected makeup mm. that I used as the sub, many of the subliminal cuts in The Exorcist. And I've used it in other films as well since then. What was your work like with Dick Smith? Did you give him a lot of guidance? Did he come to you with ideas? Uh, he was the greatest makeup artist of his day. Yeah. He had never done anything like this, but th neither had I. Yeah. So Dick set out and did a number of things, and it all, uh, to be frank, it all looked like monster makeup to mm -hmm. me. And I rejected it. And finally, I started to think, well, if I don't like what he's doing, what is it that I want? What do I want him to do? And it, like everything else, it came to me in a flash. I said, Dick, when she becomes possessed, the, the makeup should be intrinsic to what has happened in the film. For example, there's a scene where she masturbates with a metal crucifix and is, is stabbing at her vagina and Let's say it was possible that she also used that crucifix to disfigure her face mm. so that what the makeup grows out of is the gangrenous sores that have appeared from her own attempt at self-destruction. Uh, and Dick picked up on that, and then, of course, he added the discoloration of her eyes, right. which gave the sense that she might also be inhabited by something else. But the makeup grew out of that, something that was intrinsic to the story. Something organic. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's very intense, particularly in 1974 when the film came out. There had been nothing like the self-mutilation with the crucifix. And the, was, were there battles to be fought with Warner Brothers at that time? Warner's was terrified of, of what the reaction to the film might be. The studio thought that this was going to be an X-rated picture. And I think Warner's was bracing to either have me cut it down or go with it in a limited release. They didn't know what they had. Neither did I, by the way. But Aaron Stern, as head of the code for the MPAA, he watched The Exorcist. I didn't know him at the time. Uh, he called me a half hour after they screened it. He said, Mr. Friedkin, this is Aaron Stern. Yes, sir. He said, what a great film. He said, it, it's just fabulous. He said, we're going to give it an R rating with no cuts. Wow. We're not going to ask you for any cuts. He said, now, we're going to take a lot of heat for that. I want you to know that. And so will you. Hmm. He said, but I think that people should see this film. I don't think young people should see it very young people. Uh, I think people of a certain age shouldn't see it without a parent. But we're not going to restrict this film and give it an X, which in those days, as to you, couldn't advertise it. Right. So he saved the film. He gave it an R. But many theaters around the country played it as an X anyway. Hmm. They put their own sign outside the theater. Self-imposed. In yeah. Washington, where I shot the film. At the Georgetown Theater, it played as an X. Unbelievable. And in Boston, of course. You know, <laughs> of course. It, it played as an X. Are there movies that you've seen in recent years that inspire you or excite you or young filmmakers? The Coen Brothers, of course, uh, and uh, Catherine Bigelow. Mm -hmm. the, the day I saw The Hurt Locker, I knew it was going to win the Academy Award. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, I saw a film recently that hasn't come out in America as we're taping this. It's a film called Harry Brown hmm. with Michael Caine, uh -huh. made by a bunch of young British filmmakers. And I thought it was great. It's the best performance Michael Caine has ever given. It's, it's saying something. Well, yeah, it's yeah. saying a lot indeed. <clears throat> and it, it, it caps a great career. But this, his performance in Harry Brown is... Uh, Magnificent. And the movie is quite terrifying. There was a film a few years ago about Hitler in the bunker called Downfall. Right. Did you ever see that? Yes. With Bruno Gantz, who played Fantastic. Hitler. He was Hitler. Mm -hmm. And I will now tell you that what that film brought out for me was my, it strengthened my belief that Hitler, the only explanation for Hitler is demonic possession.
This was also the country of Goethe and Thomas Mann and Beethoven and, you know, great thinkers and writers and poets. And they followed this crazy little ex-corporal into hell. They, it's the only time I've ever heard of a country that based its, its uh, 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 political philosophy on the extermination of a race of people. Yeah. No, the only thing that explains Hitler to me is demonic possession. And that movie called Downfall, or the German title is Untergang. Mm -hmm. it, to me, it's a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't explain why a whole race of highly intelligent, sophisticated people followed the devil into hell. Well, you've scared audiences several times. You've done some frightening things, not just uh, The Exorcist and The Guardian, but even on television, you, your Tales from the Crypt, a show that was often very jokey and winky. Uh, your From a Dead Man's Chest episode mm -hmm. is very dark and very intense. And your Nightcrawlers for uh, Twilight Zone in the 1980s is... I think by far the best episode of that show and one of the scariest things done on television. Oh, thank you. So what have been the different tools that you would use to go work in different media from an R-rated the theatrical film to commercial television? The only thing about directing for television is you usually have less time than you have to make a feature. But what attracted me to doing those short films for Twilight Zone and uh, for Tales from the Crypt was the script. I, they sent me these scripts, and I thought they were terrific in any medium. And I don't view one medium as superior or inferior to another. But as far as I'm concerned, I have to be able to please myself. Right. I have to, first of all, be drawn to the story and the characters. If I am, I'll do a play in a church basement. Uh, it's an adventure and an education. And that's why I got into the film business which is a great way to wrap it up. Thank you so much for sharing your time and stories with us. It's a pleasure, man. I appreciate it. God bless. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.